I plan to give uh, a few messages, I'm not sure how many, maybe just one more, from the book of Revelation. And basically what I'm going to try to do is not explain the book to you, but explain to you how to read the book. Uh, and hopefully this will be helpful as you read this really incredible section or portion of Scripture, this revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to begin by telling you a little account of something I heard on the radio a couple weeks ago, and it kind of got me thinking along these lines, the lines that we're going to explore this evening. I was listening to one of these uh, Christian radio programs where people call in and ask a man questions about the Bible, and he answers them. And this one man called up, and apparently he'd listened to the, the program before because I, he said, I heard you talk about the throne uh, that's spoken of in uh, the book of Revelation, and you said that that <coughs> represented uh, authority and power and that it was uh, a symbolic way of talking about the the uh, authority that that uh, was uh, being symbolized by by this uh, picture of the throne. And man said, "Yes, that's what I taught about that." And he said, "Well, was the throne a literal throne?" And the talk uh, show host uh, said, "No, I believe it was part of the." The book here of Revelation, it has a lot of symbolism in it, and uh, it's, it's a symbol to represent authority. And this other guy said, well, I just don't think that's believing the Bible. It, when it says a throne, it means a throne, and Christ is sitting on a throne. And so they went back and forth on that a while, um, and finally the, the uh, person answering the question said, well, do you believe that the, the red dragon that's talked about in the book of Revelation is an actual dragon? He says, yes. If the Bible says there's a dragon, then there's a dragon. Um, so he questioned him on that a little bit, talking about this. So there, there's an actual, literal, seven-headed dragon with crowns on its head. He says, if the Bible says this is what there is, then there is that. Um, God can make a seven-headed dragon with crowns on it if he wants to. Well, um, the, the, the man uh, running the show said, well, uh, I just think you're misunderstanding how to read this book. And... The other guy said, well, I just don't think you believe the Bible. 
So, I, I want to ask you a question tonight. Do you think that this man that called in and, and uh, spoke about the drag and the throne and things, do you think this caller believed the Bible? Did he believe the Bible? That's my question to you tonight. All right. Jim said he probably believed. He probably believed that he believed uh, what the Bible said, but whether he really believes the Bible is another question. And the reason for that is, you don't really believe the Bible unless you're putting confidence in the truth that God intended to convey through the words of the Bible. And if God did not intend to convey that there is a literal seven-headed dragon with crowns on its head, and you say that's what you believe, then you're not believing what the Bible teaches. Right? Yeah, I, I don't doubt that he believed that he believed the Bible, but he didn't believe the Bible. Well, that's kind of a lead-in to what I want to talk about this evening. If you take a hyper-literal position, I don't know what better way to describe it, a hyper-literal position and apply it to symbolic sections of the Scripture, you're going to miss the truth. Now, on the other hand, if you over-spiritualize passage of, of Scripture that present truth in a straightforward manner, and you're spiritualizing all of that, you're probably going to distort the Word of God that way. So you can go overboard either way. The pro, what you have to determine is what kind of writing you're reading. You have to recognize the type of literature we're dealing with if we're going to properly interpret it. When we're studying the book of Revelation and certain other portions of Scripture, like Daniel, at least the latter part of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, the last few chapters of Isaiah, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Now that's not a word that we use very often. Why is it called apocalyptic literature? Well, it comes from the first word of the book that we're going to study. At least it's the first word in Greek. It's uh, the Greek if uh, the Greek word apocalypus if I say it right. If you were reading the book of Revelation in Greek, the first word you'd come across is that word. So, naturally, because of the nature of this book, this type of literature is called apocalyptic literature. And it means to uncover, to disclose, to reveal. 
That's where we get the word revelation, you see. For biblical writers, it meant a divine uncovering of truth or unveiling. Uh, God pulling back the curtain to show his work in the world. He was revealing what he was doing. So that's where we get this, this uh, name for this type of literature, apocalyptic literature. Uh, so this book begins, if, you're, if you've turned to the book of Revelation, it begins the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place and he sent and commissioned it by his angel to his bondservant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So God gave something to his son. God gave him, that is Christ, to show to the Christians of that time. Uh, so showing something of what he was doing in the earth at that time and in the future. Uh, He's showing what is real about the world to his followers and helping them understand the situation that they were in. So that's, that's the, the setting. Let's pray here and ask God to help us as we seek to understand uh, how to understand this book. Father, we pray that you would guide us by thy spirit. Help us as we think through these things. We pray for illumination and just clarity in our minds. Help me as I share these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, God was communicating something to his bondservants, especially related to the situation they found themselves in at the time. Uh, it was written to the seven churches. You see that in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So, they were the original recipients of this book. And they were currently experiencing and going to experience more and more persecution, tribulation, difficulties. That's what you see throughout this book. Jesus wanted to show them what was going on, you might say, behind the scenes of the outward, all this persecution and difficulty. And he wanted to do that so they would have strength and hope and would persevere through these difficult times. In addition, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It ultimately points... To Christ. If you, if you read through this and aren't uh, thrilled and uh, encouraged 
in the, in the work of Christ and the power of Christ, then you've missed what the book's all about. The symbolism and the figurative language all point to what he was doing for his people and will continue to do and will do at the time of the second coming when he comes again. The basic proposition of the whole thing is that Christ is victor. He's going to triumph over all opposition. Now, it's true that this book was written to these seven churches in a time of great tribulation, but its message is for all God's people living in this fallen world. It was written to them, but it's for God's people throughout the centuries. Uh, it's an encouragement, just as it was to these seven churches, to patiently endure, to not abandon the love that they had at first, to strengthen the things that remain, to hold fast to what you have, to be zealous and to repent when you fail and continue to look to Christ and to realize that in the midst of things looking so dark, there is a new world coming uh, by the power of God. So the point I want to make tonight is that this apocalyptic book is indeed a special kind of writing that must be interpreted in a special way. Interpreting apocalyptic imagery in an overly literal way like this man was doing that called into this program will end up having you believe some things that are outlandish and absurd. Now, here are some just some basic things to remember as you read through this book. This Tonight's just kind of a... Uh, foundation laying time. So, just some foundational things here. This type of writing, which is pretty strange to us, was common. It was a common form, form of writing in the two centuries before and after the birth of Christ. So, two, 200 years before, 200 years, all that time. There was a lot of this apocalyptic literature. Not, not given by God, but floating around uh, in literary circles. And uh, so it was, not, it was not a strange thing to read this type of literature the way it is for us today. Uh, it's important that we recognize the cultural context of these first century readers it's a, it's a key to understanding the, the book. Uh, so, you know, part of the thing that will help a person understand some of the things in, in this book is just understanding the setting that it was written into, the frame of reference, will help us in interpreting the sim symbols and the figurative language that are used. And again... Uh, many of the, the things that we don't understand about it would have been readily understood by the people back then 
because they understood the culture. They understood the, the uh, you might almost say, the cliches and the symbolism that was floating around at the time that we don't understand. Uh, so, sometimes uh, the book will say, well, let the reader understand. And you say, yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> but the reader, the Christian reader back then understood. And a lot of times by doing a little investigating outside the Bible, uh, we can understand better than we can by just reading it uh, uh, on its own. The other thing that really helps is to know the Old Testament because almost all the symbolism, not all, but almost all, is taken from the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel. So if you get a good handle and you see those things there and come to some understanding of how they were used then, you'll understand why John used that symbol or that image in, in this book. Um, the other thing is, is that even though there's some things that we've kind of lost track of as far as what they mean, there's, there's other things that we haven't. Uh, not all sim- symbolism has been lost to us. A lot of the, for instance, the uh, numerology, the use of numbers, we have a pretty good idea of what uh, some of those things mean. Uh, when numbers are encountered, it's good to remember that they're probably symbolic, not straightforward use of numbers like if I uh, told my son to go out outside and bring me two apples, he wouldn't think, I wonder what Dad's talking about. There are two. I mean, he knows I want two apples. <laughs> but in the book of Revelation, it's not like that. Most of the numbers have a symbolic significance. Uh, the number seven is a good example. Very important number. Uh, in uh, Sevens are all over the book of Revelation. Well, what's, what's the significance of seven? Well, it's the number of perfection. And we, we understand that even from creation, the seven-day creation. God finished his work there and rested on the seventh day. So seven speaks of perfection, of the completion of God's task. So when you see seven, it, it speaks of completion. And not all the sevens are in a positive light. For instance, you've got, you got the seven-headed dragon. Well, there's a, here's a perfect form of evil, you see, symbolized by this seven-headed dragon. Um, so you have seven. Well, then you also have three and a half, spoken of a number of times. Well, what's three and a half? It's half a, half a seven. Uh, half of perfection, which is talking about incompletion, uh, sin, profound uh, evil, three and a half. Then you have the number six. Six is short of perfection, and it speaks of man. The day man was made, it speaks of, of sin. If you have a number like 666, you're really dealing with something sinful. Uh, sin repeated three times, complete and pure sin, a complete depravity. So 
You see, all that is, is something we can get somewhat of a handle on just by thinking about how numbers are used in the scriptures and the fact that we're not necessarily talking about a straightforward uh, uh, use of, of, of numbers to signify the way we normally just count. Uh, Twelve, again, complete, complete assembly of God's design, the twelve tribes, twelve disciples. Uh, it uh, speaks of completeness. Uh, 144, what's 144? Well, it's 12 times 12, uh, which is ultimate completion. And then you have 1,000. 1,000 speaks of a large number. Uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, does that, you know, what about the other hills? No, it's talking about all the hills. It's completion, you see. Uh, so you have 144, which is, speaks of completion. You have uh, a thousand, which is a very large number used to signify a vast number. So you take a thousand times 144, and you get 144,000, which speaks of a vast number, of a complete, uh, sufficient, all, you see. Um, so if you read about 144,000 people, you don't necessarily have to think, well, that means not a, you know, 144,001. Uh, he's not trying to, to make you think of this certain number, specifically that number of people, but a large, complete, vast group, 144,000. You see what I'm saying? So when we read the numbers in a, a book like the book of Revelation, a lot of them are symbolic in their meaning. So we got numbers. Then you might realize as you read through the book, that it's one of the most colorful books in the Bible. Colors all over the place in this book. Um, and by, again, the colors are symbolic. Uh, there's a lot of color symbolism used throughout the book of Revelation. Let me just explain some of these to you. Uh, some of them you, you already have a, a, a grasp on, I think, just from reading the scriptures, uh, the, the most mentioned color, uh, most frequently mentioned color is white. And it almost always symbolizes purity. Uh, white garments speak of personal holiness. Christ's garments are naturally white, but the garments of the saints and the martyrs are made white in the blood of the Lamb. But white again, speaking of purity, of holiness. The opposite, black. Black is the absence of light, which is the opposite of God. Since God is light, black is just the other way around. Uh, it often symbolizes evil, degradation. Uh, in Revelation 6, 5, you have a black horse which represents the evil of famine coming upon the earth. In Revelation 6.12, uh, Revelation 6.12 tells us 
that as part of the final judgment, the world will be plunged into darkness. So uh, just the opposite, you know, end of, of, of light and white is black. But then you have a color like uh, purple. Purple was the most expensive dye in the ancient world. It was obtained at great cost and difficulty from little mollusks, and people could not afford purple. Uh, as such, it, was, it represents wealth and power and status. So when we read about this great prostitute in Revelation 17, clad in purple and scarlet, we're meant that what we should think about is the, the, the uh, sinful wealth that's being represented uh, uh, in this, um, this symbolic uh, presentation of this prostitute. Um, red. Red's a color that comes up a number of times in the book. It symbolizes war, destruction, really from the idea of bloodshed is what, uh, we're, what we're thinking about. And it's used, for instance, uh, to describe uh, another horse uh, that uh, is presented in uh, these four horsemen. And uh, one of them is on a red horse, which brings forth war. So again, bloodshed. Um, there's a red dragon which opposes Christ, the Messiah. So again, the opposition, the, the uh, sinful aspects of the destruction uh, that's associated with red. And then there's the, the moon and the sea turned to red as blood, which again speaks of destruction and war and misery. Uh, green, green, uh, when applied to plants and vegetation, uh, it's talking about life. It's talking about freshness. But uh, when when the green is destroyed, you're talking about destruction of life, um, which you see like in uh, Revelation eight seven. Uh, the, the same color. It's, uh, one, another one of these horses is called a pale horse or an ashen horse, but the color actually it's the same word that's used for green in other parts of, of the book of Revelation. Now, how can that be? Well, that horse uh, is, is used to symbolize death, and so you can have green symbolizing the life in, in a plant, but if you have green meat... You've got death. So it can be both ways. So for the horse, it's, it symbolizes uh, death and destruction. So green. Um, those are, you know, a few of the colors. White, black, purple, red, green. Um, those, those are things we can have a pretty good idea of what's to, what the writer's wanting us to, to think about. Uh, let me mention a few objects. Um, that come to mind readily. Well, the first is a throne. We've already talked about that when this guy called into the radio program. A throne th symbolizes uh, power and authority, which is very similar to a crown. The person 
on the throne often has a crown. It's again, it symbolizes authority or rule. Trumpets symbolize an announcement of an important message. Uh, a dragon, satanic power, evil, uh, symbolized by a dragon. Rainbow, God's wonderful covenant with creation. When, when uh, one of the visions of Christ on the throne has a rainbow around the throne, that's because we should think of mercy. We should think of, of uh, hope. We should think of life. Uh, the life, just as the bow there in Genesis spoke of God allowing life to come forth again after there was death. Um, actually, the, the uh, rainbow talked of there in Revelation chapter 4, it says was an, an emerald, the color of an emerald. Well, that's green. An emerald is green. So he had a strange, you know, it's symbolic, obviously. You don't have green rainbows. But this was a green rainbow that he saw. But again, I think it's, it's, it's to get across the idea of God's covenant of life, his, his mercy, his, his grace uh, being... Uh, presented in a symbolic way there with Christ on the throne. So he got, he got a bunch of symbols right there. Uh, the throne, the emerald colored rainbow. Uh, these are the kind of things you need to think about when you read this, this kind of literature. Uh, well, why would God use this type of writing. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I know the complete answer to that or even the, the uh, maybe even the main reason, but I think that there's a couple things here that we can say. As I mentioned before, it was a common form of uh, literature of that day and it would be very meaningful and appealing to the people that he was writing to, that, that John was writing to. One person said this, This form of writing was still popular when John wrote the book of, of Revelation. This might indeed indicate that God is prepared to preach and publish his message through the popular idiom of any day or time. In other words, he wants people to understand this and this was a way to do it because this was a common way of uh, writing at that time. In using the apocalyptic form, John probably ensured that many people would read Revelation. And I really think it's somewhat similar, and this goes to, kind of to the next point, but it's somewhat similar to the Christ's use of parables, because that was a, a form of communication at that time that was used, and there was... a a reason for doing it, uh, the reason for Christ speaking that way, and it partly was so that his people would understand, but other people wouldn't understand. And I think that's part of the reason for, possibly anyway, for why John wrote the, in this form. You've got to remember, this is a, in a time of tremendous persecution. He's already on the island of Patmos because of his testimony for Christ. So John might have avoided additional persecution both for himself and for other Christians by using a style which was already popular 
and using that to mask great truths about God and the state and heaven and Satan and eternity within that form, the form that believers would understand, but non-believers would just see it as yet another writing in this popular style uh, and would not worry about it very much. You, you see, you have to understand the book of Revelation is directly attacking uh, these ungodly systems that had been built up and that uh, were bringing persecution upon God's people, uh, which would... Uh, the, the Roman rulers would not have approved of that at all. But if they couldn't recognize it because of being couched in, the, in these symbolic... Uh, form, then it would possibly, you know, make it through uh, places where it normally would have been banned. So those are some possibilities. Uh, it's it's a literature that you know. There's all these. Really, some of these creatures are very uh, hard to even picture. In uh, beasts with tails like scorpions that have heads on their tail. It's just you can't hardly even picture it. Um, but they are ways of communicating truth that you know are strange to us weird, you might almost say, and yet God is uh, using that form to communicate truths to his people and to uh, bring them hope in the midst of great difficulty. So, anyway, that's just uh, kind of a... maybe unorganized uh, introduction to what we want to look at in the future. Um, let me just say this, that what I want to do next time, I'll just kind of give you a heads up here so you can be thinking ahead and reading ahead. We're going to look at the main ways that this book has been interpreted, especially in relationship to the time frames of various ways to interpret it or to understand it. And the, the way we'll do that is we'll use Revelation 13, 17, and 18, which talks about the name of the beast and the number of the beast as an example of how different viewing this book in terms of different time frames can make you have a totally different view of what, the, what that means. So, uh, if you would read ahead in probably if you'd read chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, and then go into the next chapter, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, it might make it a little bit more meaningful to you when we look at this the next time. Uh, some of you have been meeting with us for many years and uh, 
you probably never thought you'd hear about 666 and uh, the mark of the beast. But, but we are going to look at that next time. <clears throat> at least what we'll do, Lord willing, is look at different ways of looking at that, the various ways that uh, we can approach that scripture to try to understand it. All right, I'll uh, stop there. Uh, I will say this. Um, you know, my hesitancy in uh, dealing with this is just that, you know, in some ways it seems like uh, this can be abstract and academic. When we got, you know, in our lives we have really deep difficulties, needs, uh, trials. But this book was written to people in difficult situations. And uh, so if we can, you know, apply the basic truths, even if, if the situation isn't exactly the same, which it isn't, and uh, the, the trials aren't the same, but if we can get a hold of the answer to their, their trials and tribulations, which... Uh, is found in Christ it can help us and if, if, if they can learn to worship God in that situation it can help us to learn to worship God in whatever situation we're in and the other thing is hopefully it can keep us from going down some blind alleys uh, in our interpretation of this book there's there's lots of people that I really think are spending a lot of time uh, on things that are not productive in their Christian life just because they've been steered in the wrong way of uh, viewing uh, this apocalyptic literature, this type of literature. So it can help us that way too. All right. I'll stop there.